0: Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Laura Fedoroff.
1: I'm sure you've witnessed this before. Many organizations and internet sites are adding social elements to their sites, but they're finding they're not really getting the interaction they expect. Social is actually much more complicated than many people expect. I spoke with Thomas VanderWaal. He's a senior UX designer and strategist at Design for Context. He explains how to deepen your understanding of social interaction design, where you can build great foundations and work through various social design needs as they arise. Let's begin with where he got started.
0: So relating to web and sort of social pieces, have a background in uh, communication uh, theory and organizational communication uh, for undergrad, and, and sort of very in depth on how humans communicate, interact, um, and particularly through mediated interfaces. And what are the things to to look out for? But then also, you know, how do people work in groups, in interact with the different dynamics? Uh, if you're trying to work with a message um, or information, how does it share? You know, share? How does it get adopted? And so that was sort of a foundation from undergrad. Worked for about five years, mostly around IT sort of space um, and wearing sort of an IT hat. And this is late 80s, early 90s uh, in San Francisco. And then decided I was going to do a career shift because being tied to most things technology was just sort of one step above the janitorial service. And so wanted to take a career change and head toward public policy. And one of the things in grad school and public policy taught was social analytics and being able to look at situations, see what worked. If you're trying to move a population either for better health or decreasing crime, you know what are the, the variables that make sense? What are the things that work? How do you begin to look at a situation, understand what you're capturing and what you're missing? And how do you begin to to capture that information and share it? And when I got out in '95, this whole web thing had started to take off. The first job was essentially taking care of a trade association's website, as well as doing a little bit of policy work for them, as well as managing a uh, private compuserve forum for 3,000 attorneys, which was highly entertaining. Because they have a various known practice of when something doesn't go their way, they threaten to sue or to take action. And so trying to sort out what is triggering this, and quite often it's that they don't agree with somebody else and what somebody else said. Um, So if you don't have them blocked or remove their content and what was shared, then they're going to ask that you are removed from your job or other things. And it's (laughs) just trying to understand... You know, the web, the managing the web piece was rather straightforward and easy and was able to use an awful lot of what I learned with communication undergrad um, and working from sort of a public relations space, as well as working within print media and getting some foundations in those for layout. And and essentially you're doing wireframing for print layout, figuring out where things are going. You're trying to figure out audience, targeting the message to the audience and doing audience composites, which Alan Cooper um, was working with an ad agency, and they Bay Area ad agencies in the um, 80s were, they relied heavily on audience composites, and he turned around and called those personas. And they're almost identical to the audience composites of the 80s that Bay, at least Bay Area ad agencies were using, heavily influenced by data understanding who the consumers, who the, the target market was, um, and being able to understand what terms they used, how the information was going to be used in their life, Um, and they were quite often mocked up on sort of mood boards and other things. But you understood essentially who the persona was, what their background was, you gained empathy, and how what you were working on fit within their life and made a difference. Um, Whether that was buying a pair of jeans, whether that was buying a taco— Um, whether it was giving to a cancer society, no, no matter what it was, it was all fit within these audience composites or as Alan Cooper called it, uh, personas, and he was trying to use the personas to talk about technology, sure. um, but use the exact te- exact technique that was being done within the communication agencies, the ad agencies, and PR firms for things that they were doing. But being able to take those and bring them to a sort of a digital practice in early '90s, and understanding who you know the users of the site were, um, the various constituencies. Um, and taking all these things that I had learned from the non-digital and print world and then applying them. And by about 2000, had started running into other people online sort of talking about this, but um, there wasn't any sort of group or anything that I knew about. And it turned into going to South by Southwest in 2001 and running into um, a group of folks that were starting a company called Adaptive Path. Um, And they were launching South by Southwest and like, oh, a lot of this is called information architecture. We have a, a meeting of folks that's coming up soon. You know, you should probably think about going to that uh, conference as well. And so it's like, wow, this information architecture, and then started finding about some of the blogs um, and other things. And some of them I had been reading, but not really understanding what things were called. And then started going through the practices that uh, people had. And I was like, wow, this maps very closely to what I, you know, what I had been doing. And I had been following... Uh, Nathan Schredgeroff's company uh, Vivid Design uh, and Vivid Studios out of San Francisco uh, for many years, and a lot of the things that I had been doing was reading uh, what Nathan and others at uh, Vivid were doing, and it mapped almost directly to what I knew. And they used some slightly different terms, but their methodologies were almost dead-on from what existed before that had been around for 40 or 50 years and honed and crafted. So it was sort of an easy step into this wireframes, understanding audience, understanding needs, if you want to talk about something, what are the terms you need to use um, to connect for navigation and finding that information. So it was a a natural fit for the stuff that I cared about and, and had learned. And then dealing with the CompuServe and that social platform, started using an awful lot of that social communication piece and organizational communication, then also married with public policy and being able to say, what's working, what's not working. Uh, and I spent an, an awful lot of time talking with the CompuServe product folks and being able to walk through the initial five questions of, is it the individual and a problem that an individual has or, or certain individuals? Is it how humans are social? And that started breaking down and realizing that there isn't really a common narrative for how humans are social. And then you start thinking, well, maybe it's cultural and cultural influences and the different personality types that are driven to the different types of law where there's uh, differing interest. Um, Is it the organization and its constraints um, by oversight and what they can talk about? Or is it the tool? And figuring out sort of what that weave is of all five of those. And, you know, which strings do you pull to tighten that weave? And which strings do you pull that's going to cause it to fall apart? Right. And so that was just, it was really fascinating and always sort of stayed close to it even when I moved on from that role. Um, but an awful lot of what I moved into was more telecommunications and understanding sort of spectrum space. But every role that I went to sort of ha- was wearing that geek hat in managing the website, managing sort of internal intranet, how things were shared internally. And you know those same skill sets um, stayed and little by little would sort of bounce in and out. And, you know, my work changed and started being far more web development uh, focused, but UX and IA were the foundations. Right. There wasn't a, you know, if you wanted to build anything successfully, looking back to communication, you need to figure out what people called it, how people thought about it, what their mental model was, and figure out how to map the tools to adapt to that and understand how people needed that information in their life. Um, for their job, and then you know, once you got beyond job, and we started getting mobile devices, and seeing that very early on in the late 90s with Palm devices, and watching how people were putting information in their pockets, and then having those be connected wirelessly in some of the Windows phones, and it's like, wow, 2001, this mobile revolution's here. Right, you know. Large chunks of people had either text message capability, they'll search for something on the internet, and they go to a store and they forgot what they searched. Well, we've got this nice little thing that we can, if you have SMS, tuck to you know, the site and it's like, oh, this is the washer and dryer that I'm looking for. Yes. Um, this is the model number. Push it to my phone so I have it in my pocket. When I go to the store in early 2000s, we had that and started talking about the Come To Me web. And it's like, you know, this come to me web is here. It's no longer the I go get web. We now right. need this information out in our lives. And had been working on mobile design and development and not realizing that not everybody else had caught on to this. Okay. And it's like, and it wasn't until sort of iPhone came out that all, you know, it's like, wow, this mobile revolution's here. Right. But it's like, it's been around. But if you're taking a look at, you know, how people use information in their life, And sort of, once you step away from the screen, um, and from what I hear, there's people who are not geeks that don't have a screen in front of their face You know, every day that need this information in their life. Yes. Um, You know, building for them as well. You know, something like ninety eight percent don't live that way. Odd.
1: (laughs) Those other people. (laughs) Yeah, those other people, the unbroken
0: ones. (laughs) (laughs) But it's you know being able to you know see how things work, and then also just sort of understanding the affordances when you don't have a connection. Mm -hmm. One of the frustrations with more people getting this mobile revolution is that they're eating up all this lovely bandwidth that's floating around in the air that we can't see. It's like I can't get my check in. I can't figure out what's going on. Right. Where am I supposed to be next? It's in the cloud. Like, it's not cloudy, it's sunny. (laughs) Darn it, it's a nice day. Yeah. Um, I'm free to go do whatever. You know, taking that information use and then sort of watching the Web 2.0 thing happen and then being somewhat tangentially tied to the edges of it from friends that I met through South by Southwest in 2001, 2002, and so forth, and they were building applications and services and... um, a few of them got together and made this thing called Twitter. Um, others um, were building uh, something called Flickr. Um, that was sort of a side project for a game that a bunch of us were playing. Um, and while the game development got stopped and they were waiting for things to return, they built this Flickr thing. And then there was uh, somebody who was working on a, a bookmarking tool that didn't rely on just your browser. And you could use it on any browser and it was always out there on the web and oh, you, know, you could tag it so it made sense and bring things within context to oh, know, by the way, it's openly shared. And delicious sort yes. of made sense. Right. And so there was a bunch of us um, in one of the IA forums and listservs that were talking about it. And someone said, oh, well, what do we call this You know, tagging thing that's happening? And I just sort of threw out the term folksonomy and had been working with tagging systems going back to early 90s with Lotus Magellan, which was this interesting piece of software that... It indexed all the words in your documents and whatever you fed it and had a really nice search. But one of the things you could do was add other terms that weren't in the document. Um, so you could add your own context to it and to glue things together and was working for a custom house brokeraging firm. in um, all of our memos with, to our customers, all of our notes about data models, other things um, for taking you know, large companies, imports and exports and production and being able to map the data to a story that uh, would help the companies get money back from US customs. But all those notes and just having these different idiosyncrasies of different industries and how they dealt with things and how they sort of worked around tariffs and, and different uh, taxation rates for importing and exporting. You know, Being able to hold on to those notes so when you ran into it again, that work for reconstructing those models and to, to tell the story is really easy. Um, And so I was like, wow, this is really magic. And it was the second job I had out of undergrad. Oh,
1: very nice.
0: And I was like, wow, you know, the 90s, this is the way the modern world works. And then, you know, went to grad school and started realizing in different jobs when I was in grad school that the world doesn't work that way. It would just happen to be this one guy who had this one cool tool that made work really easy. Yes. And made your job really easy. And then once um, Delicious popped up, Um, and finally got my mind around what it was doing, it's like, wow, it's that same sort of thing again. Um, But being able to understand sort of what regular people call things rather than having to, you know, have everybody map how they think about things to a taxonomy that doesn't map to their mental model of the world and what you call things um, started making sense. Um, But it didn't necessarily mean that taxonomies had to go away, but they could be updated and influenced Greatly by paying attention to what people were calling things. Um, and so the, the hard work of building taxonomies, paying attention to uh, what people who couldn't find things were actually calling things once they found them, um, that started making an awful lot of sense. And some of the hard work of tracking down what people call things all of a sudden became relatively easy. Um, so sort of had backed into that social space again, and people were saying, hey, know what what are these other social components how are they working you know since it was things that I had spent time with um, started running it through how I thought about things and was able to see gaps um, and areas and you know where I had experienced um, things that I had managed designed and developed you know where the social components and the interactive components between people didn't really work I'm like hey here are areas you may have a problem there let's see if we can map you know, we know that that gap exists, let's see if we can figure out how to start solving that up front in right. uh, a little what, bit earlier.
1: What was one of those gaps?
0: One of them is, and it currently exists now in an awful lot of tools, is understanding sort of what favoriting is and liking, and have presentations where I've talked about that pretty much exclusively, and the intent for a lot of users is missing for what they're, they're meaning by starring and favoriting things or liking things. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean that people like them, but it's a way to bookmark it. It's a way to give kudos back to somebody. It's like, hey, you know, nicely done. It doesn't mean that I necessarily like it. Um, Some people, they look at it as somebody has signed off. They've seen it, like it, approve of it. Um, It can also be that, hey, I saw this. Stop pestering me to look at it. I've seen it. Um, You can see that I have seen it. Um, Sometimes it actually does mean I do like this and favorite, and I'm willing to share that out. Um, Other times it's a trigger for other services to do something with it. Um, So you may want to come back to it later, pay attention to it, but you have a service that will pick it up and with things like if if this, then that. Um, So it will pay attention to a Twitter favorite and go and grab it and pull it into Instapaper um, and then also can push it out to Pinboard and bookmark it there and Pinboard will go out and if it has a link it will go grab the full text of whatever is linked to and so it's fully searchable and so the future me I may not have fully read something but it's sort of as if had read and it's within my repository of things that oh I remember seeing something and things that I hadn't fully seen Um, are still within that grasp. It had floated sort of through my view. I'm like, I saw something on this or maybe somebody talked about it, but I have that within my reach. Um, So that favoriting is a trigger for this other thing. It doesn't mean I read it. doesn't mean I approved it. It doesn't mean any of these other things that people believe. And so it's just like being able to understand that there's all these different intents tied into this one little interaction component. and it gets to be somewhat problematic if you're trying to keep a simple interface easy to use, somewhat easy to understand. Of oh, if you like this or you have interest, star it. And people take their their star modeling from Gmail, where it's just you. And it's like oh, these are these are the things I want to come back to or I have interest in. Um, and sort of comparing it to Twitter, where sometimes it used to just it didn't have any outward exposure unless you went looking for somebody's um, tweets, but now it shows up in apps. It's like, oh, somebody favorited this. And so people will say, oh, well, why didn't you retweet it? Well, I don't know what it says. I don't know if I agree, but this is just a reminder to come back and I'm going to review you know, things that I favorite. And so it just it gets to be these odd understandings of what does it mean. Right. Um, and I know two organizations who have had people fired because there was a misunderstanding of what favoriting something meant. Somebody had misinterpreted thinking that starring something meant that they approved of it. And it was somebody with, uh, you know, sign-off level, and they were swamped on a project, and s- we're saving it for later. They're like, of interest, I need to pay attention to this. Right. And somebody said, oh, they signed off. And so uh, the company said, oh, well, so and so signed off on this. Let's move forward, and they start allocating money toward it. They start, you know, resources, changing jobs, buying property, so forth. And somebody surfaces and goes back to things that they had favored in, and to to look at them, they're like, hey, this document, you know, this this plan for moving forward, here are some big gaps. And all of a sudden the company is like, what do you mean you signed off on this? No, I didn't sign off.
1: Yeah, it's a communication issue. Yeah, yeah. They misinterpreted the favoriting as yeah. approval, which is probably not their process for approval.
0: No, and it's just, it's sort of that understanding of in some systems, starting, you know, it can mean that. And quite often, no matter how clearly you have something labeled as to what it means, this means that you like it. People are like, no, no, no. It means that they've signed off or they're giving feedback and saying, hey, you know, this is good. Well, and that it's just can get like, dangerous. <laughs> it gets dangerous very quickly. Yeah. And had been giving, in presentation, sort of giving a story of these are potential areas. And somebody came up after one of them, the talks, and said, my company actually fired somebody for misunderstanding that. And I don't know who in that chain got fired. It could... I'm guessing it's probably the person that thought it was a sign-off. Right, right. And that would make you sense. Know, lots of figures of money started getting allocated. But then the next presentation that I gave, I said, hey, you know, there's a company that had somebody fired and somebody came up after. And they're like, my company had the same problem. Wow. And they're just like, here's what happened. And I was like, similar industries, but it wasn't the same company. I'm like, huh. There, there's more to this, and a lot of the companies, the vendors, and people that make the services are like, Yeah, we run into this an awful lot.
1: Well, a lot of the big corporations, I think, are very conservative to yep. begin with with social media, and they're hesitant to dip their toe in the water. Yep. And so, I think for some of the companies I've worked with, Facebook yep. is an easy one to get started with a business page, LinkedIn. They don't necessarily want to use that because they don't want their personnel looking for another job. Yeah. Twitter is just scary to them because they don't know <laughs> yep. what it is and they think it's kind of meaningless and they don't understand how it could expand, you know, their brand awareness. Yep. So each channel I think has its own complications.
0: Yep. yep. Being able to understand not only the the sharing messaging out, but also being able to listen. Um, and Twitter's really good for being able to listen. There's people who have an interest interest in what we're doing, but also could have a problem. When they started Comcast Care's, Comcast telephone support service was abysmal. Um, usually it took half hour to 45 minutes at the minimum to get someone on the phone. Um, and I was switching uh, cable services and I had an option. And I'm like, I don't like my other option, but I'm going to give Comcast a shot because I knew about Comcast Cares. I'm like, if I can complain on Twitter and get a response within five minutes or 10 minutes, you know, I've got 30 days to cancel. And so I was like, gave it a shot. And it was just like, my installation guy wasn't there two minutes before the end of the window. And so I started complaining and I got somebody and they're like, oh, no, he's pull- should be pulling up in your driveway. I'm like, never would have gotten that on the phone. I would have still been on hold. And I was just like, okay, this kind of works. And then talking to folks, it's a product that Esri bought. Uh, It's a mapping tool that pays attention to social platforms. And uh, quite often the disaster services and emergency services start using the service to be able to map Twitter complaints and outages during storms and emergencies, and being able to say, oh, there's an area that's lost its power, here's a bridge that's out, here's all this stuff by just paying attention to tweets and Facebook. And those folks that have geolocation turned on, they're able to say, nobody's reported a bridge out, maybe we need to go investigate. All of a sudden four other people are like, Yeah, try the bridge from the other side, it's out. Where did you have that before? And just being able to, you know, take those sort of examples and they're mapping it live. Yeah, yeah. And you're able to see see the media see and also being able to say, okay, here are the trigger terms. Um, that we're paying attention to, and it's like, okay, bridge out where um, anybody else saying it, um, let's see if emergency teams know about that. You know, how do we route around it? How do we fix it? Or it's like, you know, there's a hospital that's without power. We're not hearing anything. Their phone lines are down. But it's like people are using their mobile phones and tweeting about it. You know, calling somebody, it doesn't surface, but this magic thing of openly sharing And just saying, hey, somebody out there do something, you know, it gets hurt. And when you're, you know, having a problem with a product or a service and being able to say something that, you know, able to pop up and say, yeah, hey, what's your problem? You know, DM me your account information or your phone number, and I'll get a representative to call you or see if I can sort it out. And I'm like, oh, no, your service is down. It should be back in 15 minutes. Um, And it's just, you know, those are heavy, you know, sort of call load times and the, the time to process a call is much longer than it is to respond to a tweet sometimes. Yes. And so it's just organizations that have caught on to that. You know, For me, it completely changed my perception of Comcast. And other telephone support has improved quite a bit. Well,
1: yeah. and you became a customer because they had that excellent customer service available through social media. And I think that can be a double-edged sword, right? Because corporations don't want the negative feedback. But then if you can respond quickly and say, hey, we're really concerned about your issue, please email us and let us know how we can resolve that for you. Then other people see that you've responded quickly, you're honest, authentic, and you're taking care of the issue. And then you're actually building more customers.
0: Yep. And so it's just, it becomes one of those things that just sort of changing those, you know, those perceptions and understanding sort of what, what happens in the different services. And each of them has their own sort of flavor, um, as well as you know, strengths, benefits, and where they don't necessarily do things well. Um, and so it's you know, sort of understanding those and who hangs out and who communicates. You know, the, that old rule of, you know, in business economics, uh, you go where the customers are. Um, You know, if there's a great ice cream parlor and, you know, it's swamped and there's a line out the door, what do you know? Next summer, there's three other ice cream parlors in that same, you know, three block radius. They've paid attention like, wow, there's ice cream customers. Maybe they'll come to our ice cream place and they'll they'll break off that long line. We've always wanted to make ice cream or we're looking for a second store. So you, you do those things. If you're you know, selling um, farm equipment, you go to the county fairs and the state fairs because that's where the people are. And so you're essentially going to where the people are. And there's a good aggregation of people within Facebook and Twitter and so forth. And just being able to hang out, have a presence um, when people are talking about things or mentioning interest, being able to pop up and say, hey, yeah, you know, we're sorry that you're having a problem or, wow, that's a really good, you know, we don't have that in our, our service. Um, that's a really good idea, you know. Can you help us frame that for us? Right, um, and being able to talk to them, or just you know, you know, sometimes it's showing that you care, but then being able to execute on something is even you know more helpful.
1: So I know that, for example, in Twitter, you can do a search by. You know what has been mentioned most often, and, and yeah. some companies are really using that to their benefit. What I hear you saying is that you can be smart about how you use the information, not yeah. only going to the customer, but looking at the terms in the feed to then base whatever your product design yeah. is upon that. Have you seen that used, and and how has that been successful?
0: I've seen it used. Some of the tools that are it's. It's one of the sort of rough areas, um, just because there is now such a large volume of information flowing through Twitter. Um, And it's just, you know, being able to have sort of the keywords. um, Some companies are paying attention to not only their own brand or terms around their space, um, but uh, paying attention to competitors. And there's been, and usually when companies sort of step over the line and start trashing their customers, that gets a lot of attention. It's like you know, understanding what sort of part of the community thinks is a good practice, and when you have gone over the, the line, is something that a lot of companies are beginning to learn. Um, and it changes an awful lot. Um, sort of who cares about what, and and when this amorphous large collection of folks, and sometimes it's a small handful, a few thousand, can look like everybody. Um, and with Twitter, they have 200 million people, but that's 1.5 billion people online around the globe. And so 200 million people on Twitter is an insanely large number, but not necessarily a large percentage.
1: And are they U.S. versus um, international? Like, it's, you know, where is the yeah. location, depending on what you're looking at?
0: It's Twitter has pretty good numbers as to where people are. And just being able to pay attention to what's out there and sort of... If you ever wade into the live stream of mainstream Twitter, it's just all sorts of different languages now. And pretty much everywhere is covered. And so it's just you know trying to figure out who you're talking to um, and how you deal with, you know are, are these people local? And local doesn't, it means an awful lot, but it doesn't mean as much. It has a very different meaning. Um, and so it's just, that has shifted an awful lot and just... How you have and particularly a physical service or something that you're often that offering that is location based. That's something that's really needed in figuring out how you sort of do that on Twitter where it's global. And you know, quite often it's paying attention to what's being said, sorting out sort of where somebody is and figuring out if you're going to engage in that manner. And an awful lot of those lessons learned externally are somewhat a tip of the iceberg of what you're dealing with inside organizations because you're, you know, Twitter with 200 million is not everybody. But inside organizations you're essentially trying to get 100% and mean, you know, essentially what email did, but email took 5 years to get to 100% adoption inside organizations. And, you know, being able to have that same sort of 100% adoption engagement in mind um, with tools that are completely foreign to, you know, 80% of your organization. There's an awful lot of hurdles. That's where an awful lot of the understanding of social, the complexities around it, what works, what doesn't work, and doing essentially social interaction design and user experience to be able to identify what are the different, you know, roles, models, um, traits, expectations, and those shift quite a bit and are different f- for people. You can't really have a one-size-fit-fits-all internally, and particularly in larger organizations, um, just because it's difficult to sort of have broad education. You know, once you get over about 500 to 1,000 people, it starts fracturing a bit, and people in those start beginning to be points where people want to have smaller tools and start saying well we need something for ourselves and inside large organizations of you know under the 20,000 or over the 20,000 you start seeing many different tools being being used Um, they may have one official tool but quite often that may not serve everybody and so a different you know each group is like oh you know, we've got money and we need something that works for us to get our work done. And we want to collaborate more or connect with our customers or have ideation um, with customers and internally, how do we you know, put that out there? How do we do that? And it's like the service that we're you know, supposed to be using doesn't do that well. Um, it has an awful lot of check boxes checked, but nothing is really done well. So you start seeing those and a lot of what works really well is, you know, it goes back to user experience. And understanding different personalities and different uh, people work and think and function in different ways. And what works well for for that one group may not work for well for others. Um, sort of, you know, and a lot of people fall into roles and positions based on personality traits that they have and strengths that they have. And sort of going through social software was in the mid-2000s was talking with professors that were using blogs and wikis. Within their classes, there's a group that goes around and updates and, and cleans things up and right. ads.
1: And they're mostly men, which is interesting.
0: The one who did mine was a woman. There's oh, okay. it's That's a good. lot of university projects that That's are great. doing sort of background.
1: Yeah, I was just listening to a podcast, and it was just talking about women in technology, yeah. and specifically, like, overall for Wikipedia, how many authors are men versus women, yeah. and that they're far outnumbered in why, and... Huh. So I thought that was surprising
0: too. Yeah, there's the public policy program that I'm that I graduated from. They're part of a uh, collection of, I think, eight different university and public policy programs that are going and working on public policy issues and um, public policy related matter in Wikipedia across various languages. And they're looking for volunteers and even graduates. I'm like, wow, this is, you know, really impressive. And then started talking to people from um the wikia foundation that funds it and there's tons of teams that are on different subject matter like oh yeah this is incomplete That's let's update great. it and i was just like this is it it was rather impressive um, and then you also have all of the back um history of it. Right. And so if something gets cut down a little bit or goes missing
1: the archive.
0: Yeah. And so it's like, oh, you know, what was there before? I know there was something here. Right. What did it link to? Where did that information go because it was good? Yeah.
1: Do they get recognition for content contribution?
0: Some of the subject matter areas are funded, okay. and so um, you can if you do so much work, you'll get a uh, you may get a stipend. Mm. So you might get like four hundred dollars a semester or something for okay. editing some number of pages. Or oh, nice. Um, and so, but not all subject matter sort of has that behind it. Right. But just sort of like stumbled into that. Like, yeah. And then trying to sort out who edited and then, <laughs> then we'll watch like edits take place when we'll get edited. All of a sudden there's massive edits. I'm like, right. what's going, who did what, when, where? And I'm like, okay, I know that person, right, that person, right. who are these others?
1: That's awesome.
0: How do they know this stuff? <laughs> and then tracking where they got the information, like, ah, oh, I need to, I need to go clean that one up myself. Oh, of right. the Stuff that I have.
1: So we were talking about some of the complexities within organizations. Yeah. And within your talk here at the IA Summit, is there anything else that you're covering in your talk?
0: Um, did a half-day workshop today on what I had backed into a couple years ago with was a rather wide breadth and depth of information around social. Um, and had worked through an awful lot of social models from trying to understand what works and doesn't work. Um, And a lot of it didn't mesh with some of the early Web 2.0 examples and theories about what works and doesn't work. Um, And an awful lot of that was based on how early adopters think and and function. And when you start looking at, you know, what are the things that hold regular people back? You know, one of the things that I use is social comfort and social comfort with people. What are the social comfort with tools and content? And what are the interaction design and user experience design needs to build that comfort Um, and comfort I is a replacement term for trust Um, and trust isn't an almost possible word to design for because it has so many different meanings and people and they don't get to that trust is not something you can easily define comfort and being able to get to the point I'm comfortable enough to be able to contribute or participate. Um, What are the things that's holding back that comfort? You understand what that is. People, when you're talking to users, are like, they can express, but that trust thing, people will contribute even if they don't trust. But it's something else that was holding back. And so, and I also couldn't, the people that I was working with in 2008. Um, they were continually using trust and realized it was impossible to design. I couldn't benchmark it. There was nothing. And so I just banned the word trust. I'm like, you've got to use another term. And I'm like, you define it. And then within two or three minutes, you're using a different definition. And we define that and then use the term again in another definition and manner. I'm like... Let's just pick all new words, right. pick another proxy word. And one of the ones that surfaced an awful lot was comfort. Am I comfortable with who other people are? Am I comfortable with what they're going to do with the content and things that I share? Are they going to be responsible with it? Are they going to um, are they going to be reliable and sort of follow through? Are there other things that are going to keep them from being reliable that may be out of their hands? And it's there's an awful lot of things that uh, people would say that erode trust. But being able to, when you frame it in comfort... It's not like this person's untrustworthy, but I don't have comfort and they can frame sort of why. And it's like, oh, there might be something. It puts them in a more empathetic mode mm-hmm. and then being able to understand gaps in the tools. And it's like, if somebody is not doing something, maybe being able to expose their calendar, oh, they just had, you know, um, a child was in the hospital. You know, They got caught up in Sandy and have been without power for two weeks or, you know, they're still living on the roof of their house waiting right. for it to get picked up for two weeks. Um, so you've got, you know, being able to understand the, con- the context and being able to say, maybe we need some outside information to fill in these gaps. And it becomes a much more human and a much more embraceable and sort of this, this rough technical cold edge becomes a little bit softer uh, and becomes a nice a nicer way to start thinking and framing.
1: So do you use some of those questions that help define the comfort levels when you're developing the persona?
0: Being able to sort of use the, the comfort levels to, and well, initially identify the gaps. Right. And then start being able to understand, you know, what are the traits of the people that have um, a lack of comfort? And, you know, is it with the tools? Is it, you know, is it with the content? Or are they just not comfortable? Is most of where the content is being shared within sort of expert territory? Uh, but you have people who have good ideas and feedback and they're like this, just doesn't work for me. And I, I, like the company, I like the brand, and you know, I like, you know, what we're doing. If it's internal, being able to have somebody in marketing say, hey, you know, that we can, you know, we can save quite a bit of money if our our trucks um, inflate their tires a little bit more, um, so they get better gas mileage. And in the winter, for safety, decrease the gas mileage. You know, I'm looking in the in the summertime and the tires are low, and the winter they're high. And they're just like, maybe we need to switch that or pay attention to it. But how do you do that as a marketing person who doesn't, you know, have any credibility within, you know, logistics and trucking and shipping? And it's just like, you know, where's that space for ideas and, you know, is there a place and being able to say, wow, this is really good. You know, being able to understand the information flows, the types of information, sort of what is out there and the capabilities, who you um, maybe interacting with you know, and how do you do work with coworkers? Back in the mid two thousands, an awful lot of these social platforms that started getting focused on business were trying to solve the problem of getting information flows and working out of email. Um, and people were like, "Yeah, we work we work in email, but we need to bring somebody new into the project, and all of that history is tucked in email, and we can't re find it." and you know, there is no history for somebody to drop in and say, okay, here's all the discussions, but these three that have been starred, go look at those. We've tagged them. Here are the, the information that's been created. Here's the important things to look at. And we have a um, you know, either a wiki page or a living document, one that's not put into PDF or Word, but it's like people can go in and edit, and it's like, oh, here's an update to this, and you, there's only one version that exists. Um, and being able to account for sort of the broken ways we got into sharing office documents around and making it so that information was consistent and just it lived in one place. It was easy to work, work with, easy to edit. And then when you finally got to sort of an end point, it's like, oh, this is a good deliverable. Turn it over into a document format because that's sort of how things are stored and what's expected. Right. And you can style it and add your making it look as expected and sort of have it as sort of a milestone. But as you're working, having formats that work and allow things to be created collectively and collaboratively uh, far more easily and work as actual productivity tools, not anti-productivity right.
1: tools. That's great. What tool would you use for something like that when you're communicating internally, storing things?
0: There's an awful lot of services that are out there and they keep on shifting quite a sure, bit. Sure. In the session this, this morning in, in the workshop, there was people who were using Jive um, to do some of that, mm-hmm. being able to point to documents, being able to sort of see if there was anything behind an idea. Um, I know organizations that use social text. There's, uh, you know, an awful lot of services that started sort of as wiki companies, but they've changed their interface to look more like document companies. But they still have the talk pages and the versioning and everything that is there from a wiki um, but it looks more like a word document and that being able to interlink information very right. easily within a wiki allows sort of that collective understanding and people having jumping off points like where's the more where do we find more information on that and it's like you're pointing to you know a subheading in another page and it's like oh there's my two paragraphs sure. and so just that ease of work and sort of you know, when you go back and listen to like Douglas Engelbart and start reading some of the early folks um, from Xerox Park and SAIL that were building the early internet and how they collaborated across distance to build this stuff, some of the things that they were talking about this future of work, thats you know, these are sort of outcroppings, again, of, of going back to having living documents and living right. environments um, where things aren't sort of having digital versions of things that didn't really work well in the paper world.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on UX Radio. I really appreciate it.
0: This was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks.
1: This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful connections are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, meeting new people and having interesting conversations is natural and effortless. From the design of the WeWork space to the events at their buildings, WeWork does everything they can do to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. Every WeWork location is staffed with community managers who work directly with members to understand their business needs, the struggles, and their growth plans, and then they connect them to other members who can help. Events are an integral part of the WeWork experience, from product launches to elevator pitches. So, whether you're asking for advice, looking for product feedback, or just meeting like minded entrepreneurs, WeWork is a seamless extension to the community. For more information, go to WeWork.com. That's W E W O R K.com.
0: UX Radio is produced by Laura Fedoroff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcast resources, and more.